This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. No mai whakarongo mai ki te Aotai Whenua. Welcome to the Country Life Summer Series. I'm Sally Round. We're looking back at some of the stories we brought you in 2023. And today, Cosmos at a high country station in the far south. Leah checks in on a toy treasure trove in Tipuke. And I'm off-grid with a former Wellington mayor. First, we're heading to Devar Station in Western Southland, where the McDonald family have opened an entrepreneurial hub. Cosmo Kentish Barnes is there with Kate McDonald. This is our family farm. It's been in our family for over 100 years, which is very special. And we farm crossbred Romney Perindale sheep. Um, we've got 6,500 breeding ewes here. Um, we also have some cattle as well. And I'm the eldest of three children. I've got a sister, Anna. And we also have a brother called Ben, who is farming up in Wairau in the North Island. Mm. And you have a shop here. I do, yes. So a couple of years ago, I started a business called Devar & Co. And... We use our sheep's wool from the farm here and get it made into beautiful homespun jerseys that we sell online and then we also have our shop here as well now. How would you describe where we are standing now and what we can see? So we're standing on the deck of the Shearer's Quarters, which we've turned into the shop. Mm. And at the front of the Shearer's Quarters, um, Anna, my sister, has her caravan situated there. And out of the caravan, she serves freshly baked goods and coffee. And we're right on the main state highway from Queenstown to Milford Sound. So we're getting a lot of tourists calling in from all around the world, actually, which is really amazing to be able to meet so many interesting people. Uh, We also get a lot of sort of tradies, um, like builders and people doing um, work in Tiano, because it's such a, obviously, touristy town, and there's a lot of holiday makers and people with holiday homes there. So, yeah, we're sort of getting all sorts, which is it's really cool. And there's a lot of area outside the dwelling or outside the shop and the caravan for people to turn around and so they can park their boats and trucks and... um, um, we've had stock trucks, all sorts, you name it. <laughs> it's a really busy road, isn't it? It is. It's really busy, yeah. Like just standing here talking to you with these veins, so many vehicles go past. Behind the shop, there are a couple of grain silos, and yeah. behind them mm-hmm. is the wool shed. It is the wool shed. So that's where all the magic happens. Um, that's where we share our lambs, hoggets, ewes, and obviously all the wool gets sorted there. So, what's Micron wool? Do you use? Yeah, so we're using our ewe wool, which is 36 micron. And for the children's range, we're using our lambs wool, which is about 30 micron. And it's it's an outer layer, and that's what we're really trying to um, explain to people. You don't wear it directly on your skin, like, like a merino top or something like that. So when did you first think about 
you know, starting a business? So I have always been really passionate about wool. Um, I worked for our local shearing contractor in my uni summer holidays as a Rousey and could never just really understand why farmers were getting paid such little money for such an amazing natural biodegradable renewable fibre. And I went to Lincoln University and studied an agribusiness and marketing degree and mm. have sort of worked on a couple of different jobs in New Zealand since then in marketing roles. And I came back to the farm at the beginning of 2020 with the intention to go and travel overseas and do my OE. But COVID sort of hindered my plan, yeah. so I had to sort of change tact. Um, and yeah, that's when I sort of decided to do something with our wool and really wanted to showcase the crossbred woolen fibre and how we can utilise that um, in a different way and yeah, decided to do fashion wear. So the whole New Zealand made ethos is very important to the brand and is a core part of the brand and we yeah, really wanted to ensure that we keep the whole process from shearing to scouring, spinning and dyeing our yarn and then the final knitting stage contained in New Zealand. It's all done here? Yes, yeah, it is, which is amazing. And what were some of the biggest challenges you had in terms of designing and making the jerseys? So there was a few sort of um, challenges we came across in the early stages, particularly just around spinning the the yarn and dyeing the yarn. Um, So there was, yeah, challenges around that. And then also the designing. So with the designs, um, I've taken inspiration from my late grandmother. She passed away about four years ago, but she was an incredible spinner and knitter. So this is my dad's mother, Sally. And yeah, she used to dye sheep's wool from the farm here with lichen and moss and forage materials and make us these beautiful garments. Um, So we've sort of grown up with homespuns and we really wanted to enable the the urban people that chance to be able to take something from the country and wear something from the country as well. It's so nostalgic to to us. So most of your inspiration for the designs comes from here? It does, absolutely. And even the colours, I really wanted to showcase the natural environment that we live in and and name the colours or the colourways of the garments things I guess um, that reflect the environment so we've got snow which is our natural undyed white jumper Mm. we've got bark which is sort of a dark chocolate brown um, granite so a lot of the outcrops at the bottom of the Takatimu mountains is granite rock grey and brown and white throughout the rock so that reflects one of the garment colours thank you Inside the converted shearers' quarters, the Devar & Co shop showcases Kate's woollen jersey range. This is sort of a classic Guernsey, um, which we've called the Lucky Lass. Um, and we brought out this rose pink limited edition last year, which is so beautiful. We've got a few left of those. The Suave Shepherd, this is a real classic garment that my grandmother knitted for all her sons, my granddad, a lot of women. It's really suit the style as well. What are the most popular jerseys? Yeah, definitely this, the Wild Wanderer, and I'd say this is the most popular style for men in New Zealand, in this colour, the granite colourway, because that just screams homespun. Some of your jerseys have ribbing down the front, and that's a classic it is. old design, isn't it? It is, it's a classic Where did you design. get the inspiration for this from? So this was from my grandmother. We've still got one, one of the originals, actually, and my granddad wears it every now and then, but... It's quite special, so we might even frame it and put it in the shop. Mm. 
Where's the uh, greatest potential for growth? So um, Australia, parts of Australia, we're sort of looking into at the moment. Um, and then over in Canada and the US and some countries in Europe, we've had a lot of inquiries via email from, from people over there wanting to buy. Um, and we're just sort of in that process at the moment of um, ensuring that we're targeting the people that are willing to pay you know, upwards of 60 New Zealand dollars to get their garments shipped to them. Has it cost heaps to set this fashion business up? Uh, yes, I would say. Yep. No, it has. There has been a reasonable amount of investment that has gone into it and a lot of sort of just hard work and hard grind in the early stages. Um, I was working full-time on the farm when I started this, so it was sort of a side hustle at the beginning. And, yeah, it sort of evolved and eventuated into what it is today. So, yeah, we're really proud of what we've done so far and just to be able to educate people on wool and, and, and why it's amazing and, and encourage people to wear more wool as opposed to synthetic garments and fibres as yeah, if that's all we're doing then that I'm really proud and satisfied. Mm. Do you still have time to help out on the farm? Uh, yes, I do every now and then, yep. So Dad will just <laughs> ring me or text me and say, I need you at the wool shed, can you come now? Kate's parents, Fiona and James, are keen to give me a ticky tour of their scenic farm. So how much land do you have here? Um, so the property is 2,800 acres or 1,100 hectares and so we run right up to those mountains up there, the Takatimu Mountains. It's kind of a long and skinny property. We have got 300 acres on the other side of the road so we do have to move stock across the main state, state highway which we manage and we know when to do it and yes. try not to hold up the traffic too much. And um, yeah, so we're on the Tearoa Trail which is uh, the walking track between Cape Reinga and Bluff. So. We see quite a few uh, walkers. Most of them tend to go from north to south. They walk down this track, yeah. which we're on now, through your property. Yes, they do. They're pretty excited about finishing it because they've sort of got about a week till they finish finish the trail. And your daughters Kate and Anna have uh, a wee hub down by the main road, and I guess that's where some of those walkers stop off for some welcomed refreshments. <laughs> Yes, it's quite entertaining seeing their faces or hearing, oh gosh, I hope you haven't closed. And there's nothing between Mossburn and Tiana, so we're 30 k's between both. So we're right in the middle of the two two places So and right on the main highway. So the location is quite advantageous for the girls. Now James, we are working our way up quite a steep, a steep hill. Yeah, so we'll just drive up on top here and you can get a good view of the farm. We can already see quite a few sheep dotted around the property. So these are Fortusin here that that have been shorn for about eight or nine days and on average sort of feed, dried up stuff, but it's it's fine for use. Two deaths down below us there that are going to be shorn early April. Their wool will be actually fibre scanned prior to shearing. They'll be side sampled up the race. There's a guy, Don Morrison from Christchurch, that'll come and do that. It'll take about a day and a half. Why do you do that? Oh, that's done to get the quality wool for um, Kate's jerseys. We'll just stop here and get a bit more traction going up this hill, I think. We'll just get up on top here and we can get a better look. What a view. 
the property ranges in altitude from two and a half thousand feet up on those uh, sort of rocky tussocky knobs up the head of those valleys running right back down Princester Road here across onto the other side of State Highway 94 and boundaries the Marrow River down at the bottom of that cliff there at an altitude of probably about 900 feet mm. so quite a range which makes it a very good farm in the uh, aspect that you've got variation in soil types and rainfall. Does most of your revenue come from lambs? A very high percentage of it does come from lambs, yes. Probably 70%. Mm. We can't really include wool in the equation now because it ends up being a negative as far as income versus expenses of shearing. Do you mean it still costs you more to shear the wool than than what you get for the wool? Yes, it does, yeah, yeah. Negative 20 grand when you lump it all together, like wool income, yes. shearing expenses. So I guess with Kate starting the um, fashion business, things might turn around. Oh, well, that, that was, yeah, you've got to start somewhere, don't you? So it's, it's only a very small amount at this stage. Yeah. But um, but the idea's there, the and, idea and that is will there, grow. And it's been very interesting to learn a little bit more about wool and the qualities of it, and uh, that you can actually make garments out of our stronger crossbred wool, providing we have the quality there and have the people that are spinning the yarn doing a quality job, which they do, and also knitting the product. James, how long have you been farming here? This property that we, that Fiona and I are farming was split off in 1970 between my father and his other two brothers. And we took over the farming of it in 94 from my parents, Sally and David, and have carried on mm. and have three kids that are real keen on it. Mm. And Fiona, there have been a few tragic twists and turns in the family history. Mm, there has indeed. I'm a bit of a historian. I find it all rather fascinating. So in 1878, Donald MacDonald came out to New Zealand with his brother and he was 19 years old. So he came out on a ship and landed in Otago and he went to Edendale in Southland. And he had two sons and two daughters, and in 1915, he purchased the plane station, which James was just talking about, so it was, you know, 8,500 acres. And the intention of, of buying the property was that his eldest son, also Donald, was called Donald, um, would take it over. So Donald went to the war in World War One, and he was fighting in the Battle of Messines in 1917, and he was tragically killed. So uh, the family were obviously very distraught. And then the poor um, other son was Alec, and he was farming at Carter Hope Station in Belclutha. And he became the victim of the influenza pandemic in 1918. So within the space of 18 months, the poor parents had lost both their sons. So James's grandfather, Angus MacDonald, was um, also over on the Western Front fighting. He was wounded. He went up into um, a hospital in England, and his name was Angus. And he came back to New Zealand, and his uncle, Donald MacDonald, asked him, Angus, if he would like to come to the plains and run it, with the intention of perhaps buying it off him, which is exactly what happened. So, um, yeah, he had the three sons, and then, like James said, it was split up into three in 1970. So that's how that all evolved, really, through tragedy. By the time I get back to the shearers' quarters, it's a lot busier. 
We are standing outside Anna's Sprig and Thistle Caravan and this is where the locals come and get their morning fix of coffee and in fact I am with Jodine and what do you do Jodine? Uh, I'm their postie. I do Adi too and Tianao. What a fantastic job. You have no idea how lovely it is. Uh, <laughs> you become instantly part of the community and the wider community. Uh, not only are you delivering mail and parcels and things like that, you quite often it's information and, and local knowledge or you bump into people that are randomly lost out in the wilderness. <laughs> so do you go down lots of gravel roads? Yeah, from here I head down uh, Mavora Lakes Road and then down Centre Hill and then come back over the gorge and on my way home. So I, I have a little run, I'm only about 160 kilometres a day and 100 k's of that is off-road on the gravel, yeah. What were you doing before you became a postie? Uh, lots of things. So I've been in the mining industry, I've been in rubbish and recycling, I've done lots of things. Is this your best job ever? Yes, in a lot of ways actually. Uh, you go through life and you've either got two things. You've got the luxury of money if you're earning lots of money but you're normally doing lots of hours and all the rest of it. Or you have the luxury of time which is what I have. I finish work by about midday each day and I have the luxury of doing all sorts of things. So is this a daily stop off for you here? It is. <laughs> sometimes we have coffee, sometimes I just sit and chat with whoever's having coffee. <laughs> A couple of tourists are also getting their caffeine fix. I'm Rike. I'm Caroline. And where are you from? Uh, I'm from the States in the Maryland area. And I'm from Germany. What are you doing here in Southland? Uh, we are both walking Te Araroa, which is the through-hike through New Zealand from Cape Branga to Bluff. We started about four months ago. <laughs> it's wake up, walk, eat, sleep, repeat. <laughs> and you have stopped off at this handy little cafe. Yeah, it's great. We just hitched in from TNR where we took some time off and, yeah, we're greeted by coffee and cinnamon scrolls, which was great. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the hiker's dream to come off the trail or start the trail with um, a lot of carbs and delicious coffee. In between customers, Kate's 24-year-old sister, Anna, tells me about her business. I have got a wee coffee and food caravan overlooking Mum and Dad's farm devastation. Beautiful outlook here that you can see. And I opened on the 7th of December, so a very short amount of time we've been open, but it's super busy and not really good. How would you describe what's around us? What have you got in here? So here on the front bench you can see all the display of the food, all the freshly baked treats that I make daily. We've got some scones, muffins, cinnamon brioche, Thara what we have every day. Um, I've also got ham, cream cheese and sweet chilli scrolls. You've got some customers, so I'll yes, uh, stand I back. Yes, I lovely customers here. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, how are you guys? Good. What would we like? Do you make and bake all the food that you sell? Yes, I do, everything. So, so how early do you have to get up in the morning? Oh, my alarm goes off at 4.30 in the morning. Every morning? Yes. You're here in the kitchen. Yeah, smashing out the sunny buns and the muffins, <laughs> scones, 
it's really important to me that everything I do is homemade. I've found a lot of customers ask me as well. They're like, wow, did you make all this? And it's really cool. And I'm really proud to say that I do. And your caravan is right next door to the Shearer's Quarters where you've installed a a commercial kitchen. Yes, it's just a couple of steps up, so it's really handy. I can whip in and do some baking while in between customers. And yeah, it's really handy to have it right here. What's the best seller in terms of your baking? Oh, that's a tough one. I'd have to say the cinnamon brioche, the crowd pleaser everyone loves them <laughs> which is cool and the i make this chocolate brownie that's gluten free and a blondie version of it so it's like a white chocolate caramel without that cocoa element and they are yeah they just go i make them every every week have you always had an interest in food yes it's been a big part of my life since i was a little girl mm. probably more so from My mum, she taught me a lot when I was younger and also my grandmother as well. So dad's mum, she's such a foodie. So she's not with us anymore, but she holds a massive part of my heart for what I'm doing now. And you've also got a catering business. Yes, I do. That's sort of actually how my whole business venture started with catering. So I, yeah, I got a booking for 50 person dinner and that was my first one that I ever did and I was wow. so nervous that <laughs> I wasn't going to have enough food or there was going to be way too much and it worked out and that's sort of what kicked everything else off. I just kept growing and it sort of snowballed from there. Before I leave Davar Station, I pop up to the house to say hello to Anna and Kate's 85-year-old grandmother. I'm Margaret McLeod from Hawke's Bay, and I've come down because we were flooded out at home. Tell me about that. What's, what was it like for you? Well, we were lucky. Our home was all right, but we had no power, no water, no telephone, no services like that. But it was very, very stressful to watch the Narrow River break its bank in, on Tuesday morning. And then they evacuated the Mahu Power. And the township is, I think, red-stickered as far as I know. All their furniture was out on the road when I left and there was nothing saved, to my knowledge. Mm. And the neighbour's place, which was very close to me, two slips went down the hill into the houses, so they had to get out. So I've been sent to Tiana, so I'm very lucky. Your brother wasn't quite as lucky, though. No, my brother, he lost everything. And he just got his vehicle out and the rest of his family had to swim out. And he's down at um, Maranui Way. Mm. How's he coping at the moment? Well, he's got no income now and he's very stressful. And the nephew, Chris McLeod, he also down Swamp Road at Fernhill lost everything too and there is a lot of sadness and it'll take years and years to get come right. 
Mm. When do you think you'll go back home? They're telling me I'm not, I've got to go to the Wanaka show. <laughs> so they expect me to gallop around there. But I am missing home. But I'm very, very lucky and I'm having a lovely time. I feel quite selfish. Enjoy your time down here and good luck um, for when you go back home. Thank you so much. Margaret McLeod, ending that story from Devastation near Te Ano in Southland. This is Country Life on RNZ National 101 FM. On a quiet street in Tapuki, a sign on the curb will lead you to Knocker's Basement, where a treasure trove awaits. Leah Tebbett called in to find out why, at 76 years old, Knocker is still playing with toys. Hi, good. How are you going? We're in my basement of my house in Tipoki. Yeah, there's lots of wood everywhere, isn't there? When I retired, I wondered what I was going to do so I wouldn't go crazy. So I started making little wooden toys for the grandkids, like a fire engine with um, a hand plane and a jigsaw and a skill saw. And then gave the fire engine to my grandson and other people saw it and said, oh, can he make me one? And then I ended up very luckily getting a lot more machinery off a builder who couldn't work anymore, which gave me things a lot squarer when I was cutting and more accurate machines. That's meant you've made how many toys now I've since then? I've probably made over a thousand. You've showed me your book of all the bits and pieces that you've made, and it's chocker. You talked about the fire engine, but that's hardly where it stops. You've made boats, you've made cranes, you've made little Racing parking cars, lots. Yeah. log trucks, <laughs> diggers, all sorts of aeroplanes. Did you have any experience in this? No, I had... I'd never done any woodworking. What were you doing before you I retired? I was an electrical inspector, 56 years in the electrical trade. I finished at 66, I think it was. So I've been doing it for around about 10 years now, plus a little bit extra probably, probably 12, 12 and a half altogether. The whole idea of doing it is to keep your mind ticking over. I don't want to sit up there watching TV all day. It would drive me crazy. I just enjoyed doing it, and I don't have any plans. I do everything out of my head. Just guess the length that it should look like, the width, how many wheels it should have on it, what sort of material I'm going to use for the different conditions, and just went from there. I love these little kiwis that I make and they walk down the ramp. No springs, no batteries. And people are fascinated with them. I'm fascinated with them. I come home and and still play with them myself. (laughs) (laughs) Which just proves that toys has no age limit, does it? No, no, they're right. Adults can play with these ones for hours. (laughs) How do these ones work with no, what were you saying, no batteries? and got a fixed foot in the front and a moving foot at the back and it's only gravity that makes it walk. 
and there's a sewing machine here yeah, as well. Yeah, the little actually. sewing machine there, which you wind a handle, and the wooden needle on the front of the machine goes up and down. And you got your little spool of thread as well. Yeah, it's threaded through the wooden needle. You can actually interact with these toys. Yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah, the diggers are a very good favourite. People love the diggers. They're used in a sand pit. Uh, they're a ride-on. And they're all marine ply with marine carpet on top to make their little bum a bit softer. Metal bucket with metal rods operating the bucket itself with handles on it. And the kids just sit in there and make a road out in the sand pit and move it along and empty the bucket and come back and get another load. You've been asked to make a sail yacht? Yeah. Yeah. You'd not made one before? No, I haven't made a, a sailing boat, no. So I didn't know if it would work or not, but it seems to work fine. You've got the hull going on, you've got the sail, you've yeah, yeah. even got all the little bits and pieces yeah, that sort of move. Little, and little stand and the wheel moves and the got a rudder on it. And the sail, I just made that out of a piece of canvas that I had. It's got port and starboard lights and an anchor light up top of the mast and on the hull. And it's also got a little life raft in there got as well. A little li life raft and life rings, yeah. So how long did this take you? It took me about a week to make because it's got to be glued and painted and pa wait for paint to dry and time doesn't really matter. <laughs> a week's not a long time though. But like... it's not eight hours a day. It take, I probably work three hours a day on it. What are you most proud of? Um, my log truck's probably... Do you want me to get it out? Yes, yes, absolutely. And that scraps over there. And that scraps over there. What you've just done is pull, put the wood in and you've got a chain that goes over top to keep it intact. Yeah, to keep it in place. So the kids can take it off and pretend like they're working in the forestry Unloading industry. some logs or bridge beams or whatever they want. Mm. can unload it and put the trailer on the back of the truck. Um, just like the real ones with the wheels hanging over the back. How many do you think of these you've made in the past 10 years or so? I don't know, probably about 40. Does it take a week, do you think, to make these? Yeah, that's about about the same time. Oh, and a lawnmower. Uh, the little lawnmower down there, they're very popular. Kids love them, they go click, click when you push them along. How do you think of everything? I'll wake up at three in the morning, make a cup of tea and go back to bed and think, now what can I do today? I've finished that last one and then I'll just run through my mind what I, of toys and things that kids love and then I think, oh, I might go make a little jigsaw tomorrow and I'll come down that day and make a jigsaw out for the kids. And then something else crops up, runs through the, my mind. And then someone will come in to me, into my basement and say, oh, I wonder if you could make this. I'm guessing a lot of these sales. All word of mouth, yeah. yeah. I don't advertise. I put a little sign up like a, like a garage sale sign, you know, as people do. Yeah. So I just put a sign up on the weekends and someone wanders in and said, oh, can we have a look? Looking around the shed at the moment, it is jam-packed full of bits and pieces it's of It's not wood, really. Isn't it? I'm running out of stuff. Really? I really am. <laughs> <laughs> so someone might give me a, an old door or something 
which I try and make into something, or bits of scrap timber that they've got, they ring me up or drop some off to me. Do you think you could use this? And I never turn them down. Even if I can't use it, I'd stack it away somewhere and one day I will use it. I don't do it for uh, money, just as a hobby, so that any money that I might get goes into buying more material or put it into the community somehow. So you just ask people to pay you for the materials you've used, no labour or anything? No, it's only a value a value of materials, really. Why do you like doing it like that? Because, as I said, it keeps your mind active. I, what would I be doing? Sitting on a seat down downtown or something, watching people walk by. I, I, I couldn't do that. But it doesn't matter. It's all, all just fun. Knocker Harris there in his toy shed. It's nearly seven years since Celia Wade-Brown shed the chains of office as Mayor of Wellington. She's had quite a change in lifestyle since then. We've been living here just for about five years, but we've had the land for a long time, since 1987, and it backs onto the Tararua Forest Park. So if you head um, west from Carterton um, and up a gravel road, you get somewhere where it's um, damp and hilly, and that's where we live. She and Alistair Nicholson live off-grid on this 250-hectare block in the Mangatareri Valley, nursing trees from seed and trapping pests. Just under half the land is earning them carbon credits from native forest. The Mangatareri is normally quite a peaceful stream, but about a dozen days a year it comes rushing up from the rain and we can't get in or out, so we have to plan for that. Tell me about the lay of the land. What can we see here? Looking... um, north towards Holdsworth um, there's a great curve of land that I like to call horseshoe because it's like a great horseshoe valley and when we came it was grazed sheep and beef typical hill country Um, there wasn't much in the way of fencing between it and the forest park so if the cattle wanted to go up into the forest park I think they went up in there Um, so one of the early things we did was actually shut stock out and uh, it's been fabulous to see the regeneration because there's so much mature bush. We've got some you know, probably 1,000-year-old rimu trees on our place and you'll see a really big kahikatea. Uh, um, being next to the forest park, having lots of birds and the wind, it's just come back really quickly. Earlier times, what would have been happening here in terms of the, the Māori settlement? Well, there was good um, forest kai for Māori, um, whether it was the birds like the kereru or um, just collecting kahikatea fruit and uh, tawa berries and things like that. And the rivers are full of eels and fish. So I'm fairly sure there would have certainly been kai gathering. Um, Over the hill at the back of our place, going over to um, Taratahi or Holdsworth, um, there was definitely a par site over there. So, yes, there would have been definitely people living here and food gathering uh, pre-European times. So we're sitting down low in the valley at the moment and we're looking up at the hills around us. There's some forestry that's come off there, some commercial forestry, just on that slope over there. Yes, our no- neighbours upstream... Um, bought that land and decided to have the forestry harvested and the delight is it's going to go back into natives. How much they're going to plant and how much they're going to leave to the wind and the birds, we shall see. 
With the Hunterway sky following behind, it's a steep two-kilometre journey on the old logging track to the cottage where Celia and Alistair live. After crossing the river, we stop at a dam to feed the eels. What have you got there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> now there's one thing I'm pretty squeamish about is rats. Okay. <laughs> Ew. They haven't, drunk, they haven't ate the dog yet, anyway. How big are they? Um, there's one that's a about, I suppose, about 30 centimetres long, and there's one that's a good, must be 80 centimetres, getting near a metre. Yeah, so they're, and, and they've got slightly different patterns. One's a lot lighter underneath, and then they've got these little spots on their forehead. So I can't say I know them by name yet, but I'm beginning to recognise the different eel. And those rats that you've got there, they've caught these, from your traps? Yeah, the, these are from traps near the house. There's a male and a female. Um, and you now it's a constant battle. Yes, oh, is it? oh, there's there one are. there. There we are. Okay, that's good. Right, no, I'm going to do something horrible, which is stand on its head because it makes it a lot more interesting. Celia is crushing the uh, rat's head before she feeds it. They really prefer mice to rats, to be honest. Not interested in that delicious looking rat. <laughs> it's sort of headed off under the bank. Oh, yes, it has, hasn't it? Oh, well. Maybe later I'll put it in there. What else do you use the, the dam for? Well, we used to do a lot of swimming, and I'm quite a keen kayaker, and I've been trying to teach myself to roll. And I did bring my little river kayak down here and did a few rolls. But I have to say I had second thoughts really thinking about the eels and whether they would sort of maybe take a little bite out of a finger or something like that. But they haven't so far. For the next part of the journey, we hop into Peggy, an electric all-terrain vehicle designed in New Zealand and run off solar energy. Um, state of charge 64%, so we'll be fine to get up a few hills with this and take the brakes off and forward we go. How did you manage back in the early days? We had candles and um, we still got a wood fire and then once we all got mobile phones I think we had one little solar panel that just charged up the mobile phones but to get a call or receive a call you had to walk up to the top of the hill. They have a repeater now to get better internet and more solar panels so they can have a few more mod cons. A bit of domestic bliss with our um, washing line. This was like the, the furthest in corner of the whole property. So we thought, well, if we don't build here, we'll never get around to coming in. And it's been great. And we also wanted it north facing so that we'd get the solar gain. This was even before we had much in the way of solar panels. But, so it was a rather good decision. So we're just heading up past the nursery and then the woodshed. And beside here is a track. And I, it looks to me like we're going into the deep into the bush here. Well, there's some big mamaku tree ferns. We've got most of the different kinds of tree ferns here. And 
um, lots of kawakawa, so we can always make our own kawakawa tea, and some rewa rewa, the New Zealand honeysuckle, and something I'm very fond of and actually grow, um, there are a few nettles, native nettles, which nobody else, oh there, here's one, um, the onga onga, now, you don't want them too close to a trap, but I'm very keen on them because that's what the New Zealand Red Admiral and Yellow Admiral, um, the caterpillars live on them and put the leaves together to make the pupae and hatch. So no nettles, no butterflies. I'm just checking whether the rat trap has gone off. One of the many rat traps of different designs. Any other foraging goes on around here? I've also um, steamed some of the little shoots of ferns, the pico pico, and the occasional uh, mushroom, but I'm pretty careful there. Female kawakawa produces these lovely little um, golden, goldeny orange candles, and you can just nibble those. I've eaten tawa berries, I've eaten kahikatea. Um, yeah, there's lots of things that they're really nice to have a little nibble on, but you probably wouldn't eat a bowlful. They come in, it's nice and warm, it's don't worry about your shoes. It's, uh, it's the great. original tiny house really, isn't it? Yes, and that's our bedroom upstairs. Um, so you go up a ladder, uh, built by my brother-in-law, and um, there's just a double mattress and uh, a few bits and pieces and some reading lights up there. We just crouch underneath and there's this tiny little living area. It's like it's meant for... Small you people. Have, you do have to be quite careful not to bash your head, but we've got room for a couple of very comfy armchairs and we can sit and watch Netflix if we want to or um, do some mending or read a book. And, and you, wouldn't want to stand, you wouldn't want to stand up in a rush forgetting you were <laughs> in the very low-ceilinged room. That's right. And Any bumps have, on the head? Oh, yes, I've had a few, but there's also geckos live in here with us. Um, probably if we moved the chairs, there'd be a couple of geckos would come running out as well. Um, they certainly come out. I put a little bit of meringue or sometimes some peaches on the windowsill and they come out. Hello. Hello. Nice to meet you. I'm Sally. Hi. Sally. Alistair. Alistair. Hi. Hi. Thank you for getting the firearm, love. That's nice of you. You've just popped out from a meeting. Yes, that's right. Yes, yeah, been on a Teams meeting. Um, yeah, so I, I work as a computer programmer. Um, so uh, based basically from home. So I haven't been in the office for a couple of years. And what does this environment, this beautiful environment, how does that affect <laughs> your working day? Does it make you want to get out there and not stay in It and does do at work? times. It does at times. You're sitting in the back and you're going, yes, it's blazing sunshine out there and you really have got a whole lot of jobs that you need to get on with. And, yeah, yeah you know, you've got a problem on the computer and it's just not getting solved. And, yeah, so it is very difficult to just stay focused at times. Celia stokes the fire and puts some coffee on. Um, faintly aromatic. It's really nice. Now the coffee's getting ready. Fresh water comes from a stream nearby and wastewater heads down to an orchard and chook area below the cottage after being dealt to by worms. On the deck, looking out over the misty valley smothered in trees, Celia explains how she and Alistair got into carbon farming. 
We bought the land in 87 and within a couple of years we'd um, shut off the back part and then the whole of it to stock. We were keen on bringing the native biodiversity back, you know, really for the birds and the bats and the different plants. Just over a decade ago, they decided to put 99 hectares of regenerating forest into the carbon credit scheme. Much of the forest here already existed before 1990 and doesn't qualify. Three years ago, they added another 18 hectares and there's potential for more. A hectare or bigger are the current rules. It's possible that those rules may change. At the moment... um, both native biodiversity, whether it's planted or naturally regrown, and plantation forests like pine, they all earn um, credits, but you get it at different rates. So we've got, within those 99 hectares, I think there would be about 11 different blocks, and it depends what's growing. Is it just manuka? Is it broadleaf? And how old is it as to what rate you get? So it, it is quite a subtle measurement. How do the authorities work out how old it is? Uh, you have to put a covenant on the land, so you can't, you know, sign it off and then go and cut it down the next year. You know, you have to you have to permanently covenant it, and you also go round and take samples. Um, so from each of the blocks, you have to choose an average-looking tree, and this is a tragic bit. You have to cut that one tree down and count its rings, and then MPI uh, come every few years and check. Check that you haven't burnt it down, check that things are still growing and so forth. So again, depending on the um, size of your block, they will probably come more or less frequently. And calculations are made as to how much carbon is sequestered according to the age of the trees? The age and the type, and there are equations that will judge that. You can get it measured every few years or you can just stick with the average calculations. So when do you start making a return? When um, your covenant is on the title and you've been accepted into what used to be the Permanent Forest Sink Initiative Scheme and is now um, just part of the ETS, um, they will allocate for, depending on how long the trees have been growing, um, they will allocate two or three years of carbon credits to you at that point Um, and then you can sit on it's a bit like shares you can sit on them or sell them and you accumulate more you get allocated more every year and it's up to you what you do with them I mean we're going to have to sell some because we want to have a bridge so um, we've sold some before it certainly enabled um, me to spend a lot more time trapping and propagating and for us to be able to afford to maintain the tracks and things like that So, I mean, when we first got into this scheme, we certainly didn't see it as making much money um, because they were worth $5 each. But we sat on them and then there was one point where they were um, worth over $100 and now they're back down a bit. Uh, I mean, it's like anything. You wouldn't put all of your money into doing something like that. But it certainly provides the opportunity for people to either do their whole block if they're somewhere like us or for farmers to retire Um, some of the steeper country that's actually a pain to muster the stock out of anyway and then they get some funding. For us it's been a bonus but I think these days with the price that carbon credits are earning and especially if you end up getting a little bit of a biodiversity bonus then it really makes sense for 
people who've got, you know, maybe they've got a thousand hectares farm, maybe they could put 20 into it, maybe 30, maybe 50, just depends on the land and, you know, what the seed source is like. You know, if you look at the forest part, you can see why things came back here so quickly. But some places it might be in the middle of a whole grazing area and they'd have to do a lot more planting themselves, which changes the economics of it quite a lot. So it's now nearly seven years since you gave up the mayoralty in Wellington. What a contrast. Yes. So many events that you go to, so much reading, so many meetings, so many debates. Um, And when you're mayor, your day, especially somewhere like the capital, your day is chopped up like salami. You've got half an hour meeting here and half an hour meeting there. And then you go to the opening of this and an interest group wants to see you about that. And you've got to go and see the, the new council flaps or the cycleway. And it's really a pleasure to be able to actually do one thing for a whole day. You do a lot of adventures by the sound of things. You've walked the length of New Zealand. You've cycled the length of New Zealand as well, haven't you? Yeah, when um, I decided to stand down after two terms as mayor and um, give my deputy a clear run, uh, I knew that there would be a question from the media, what are you going to do next? And I'd been at the launch of Te Araroa, uh, the walk from or between Bluff and Cape Ranga, And I said to Alistair, um, that would be a good thing we could do after I stopped being mayor. And I don't think he actually said yes or no. I think he said that would take a lot of organisation. I thought, well, that's not a no, so let's do it. So um, we did five months walking in 2017. And that was pretty transformational. That was one of the things that made us decide to move here. Because after you spent five months, um, sometimes in tiny tent sometimes in dock huts which range from very comfortable to very not comfortable um we decided that look we could come and actually stay in a holiday place and rent out our family home so yeah, it was a, it was a good change of life but I, I love being outdoors and that was one of the frustrations with being mayor is you know you could have the odd weekend away, but you know, really doing more than two or three days at a time was not possible at all. So I've taken the opportunity with both hands since. Celia Wade Brown. That's it for this summer edition of Country Life. Thanks for joining us. From me, Sally Round, and the rest of the Country Life team, he Cornar. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.